0: I'm in the old room, the room I used to be in, but it's up to 13. Now it's like a festive library, you know? Great to see I just have a lot of books, it looks really quick, sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of where the hell you were. This is a great place to do a video cast from, like sitting in this chair surrounded by books and letters, all that.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here for another thrilling, scintillating episode of the Bond Daft Project Mission 20. For Die Another Day, joining me today, remotely, of course, the usual suspects, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall.
2: A very good afternoon to you
1: all. And Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. Good afternoon to you all, and let's start with our lockdown catch-up. Fran, we've just been speaking a little briefly there to you, you've uh, got a, uh, a new haircut you've been showing off to us, How, how's how's things going?
0: Um, not too bad, not too bad, I had to shave all my hair off because um, I tried to cut it myself, I accidentally shaved it too much on one side and then just had to basically go for the, the whole kind of um, completely Blofeld style uh, hairdo. Um, Apart from that, the news is um, my terrible, psychotic neighbours moved back to, back in above me and I decided to give up and just move back in with my parents until I moved to the new school I'm working in. So things are a lot better. I'm getting to spend time with my sister and mum and dad and my niece, actually sit in a garden, eat meals with people. Um, so it's good. Yep,
1: that definitely sounds like a lot better than the situation before. Uh, so yeah overall good and it's good to see your dedication to the bond project with the felt haircut gordon obviously next week we expect you to fall in line um just that's that's the order of things that's just the way it is you know that's just how it goes <laughs> yep so steve how are you doing
2: yeah i'm doing all right actually um again things just feel relatively normal i think kind of working away i've been chilling out a bit this week uh the one thing i have managed to do is finally Uh, I've decided to go back to the start of all the Bond films. I've established that I'm going to have to go back and re watch them all anyway to kind of um, get back into kind of what they were all like because some of them I haven't seen for a good year now. Um, So I watched Doctor No this week. Uh, I forgot how much I loved that final scene with the danger wheel, (laughs) which is just an absolute work of brilliance. Uh, The one other film I saw this week, strangely enough, last night I sat and watched. Uh, a new film called Eurovision Song Contest Story of Fire Saga. I don't know if any of you guys have seen anything <laughs> about this. It's Will Ferrell's new one.
3: No, uh, it seems
2: to be no. on it's on Netflix only. And in fairness, it looks at the outset very promising. It's written and produced by Will Ferrell. It stars Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdam, um obviously Doctor Strange, Notebook, <laughs> Mean Girls, etc. Um Pierce Brosnan plays Will Ferrell's dad in the film with an exceptionally dodgy Icelandic accent. <laughs> um, it looks like it's films a huge chunk in Edinburgh and parts of it in Glasgow as well he was spotted um Ferrell was spotted in Edinburgh and Glasgow over sort of the start of this year, end of last year I think it was um, so it's got all the potential to be great but unfortunately it, it kind of isn't Mm. Um, it's just it's got apart from you'd think written by Will Ferrell it'd be funny start to finish, but there's a few funny lines and some of the musical elements are genuinely very funny. But for the most part, it's just not very. The plot is utterly nonsensical; it's full of holes. I think the worst part is actually the portrayal of people from Iceland because they're all kind of seen as. It's based in a little fishing village, and everyone there is a knitted jumper wearing angry fisherman. Bit dim-witted, and it's a little bit harsh on them, I think.
1: Did the writers of Octopusy get involved in that at some point? There, or just the, the stereotyping.
2: I think we might have They've obviously turned to that. And gone right. That's how you stereotype. Probably Pierce Brosnan's gone off. You want to stereotype? Look at some of the older Bond folks. Not mine, obviously, but um, <laughs> it's, it's. I mean, it, it's quite funny that it sends up Eurovision. There's little kind of hints at how various countries all vote for each other. The Eastern Bloc and countries that are next to each other. But it was filmed in conjunction with the European broadcasting union who produced Eurovision. so they obviously couldn't go too deep into taking the absolute piss out of it which was a shame but for it was, I was that's my one kind of filmic um element uh of this week which I'm, I'm sad that it wasn't as good as I thought it might be but um, Steve
0: when did it come out the film
2: uh, there... in the last couple of days that's weird uh, like
0: I mean you would think that I mean it's kind of weird to have a film with Th- that level of stereotype coming out right now
2: That's what I it felt very sort of socially blind it it's it was within minutes of watching, I felt slightly uncomfortable at how people of Iceland, who aren't exactly a minority who are that have sort of undergone serious sort of discrimination or anything, but I immediately thought, I wonder how they're going to feel about this because it doesn't portray them in particularly good light it's just it's not bad, it's just very, very stereotypical Every Icelandic stereotype you can think of, which probably isn't many, but they're all in there within the first few minutes.
3: That's I a wonder... nice review there we've got from you, Steve, in, in, in a few I minutes. Don't...
2: I don't give them very often, so I thought I'm going to come in
1: there with a... Let's have the rating for this film. I I think so. it sounds like a two-star, at least, at most. It's
2: at at most two-star. There are some funny elements. Some of the music's great. And in fact, Rachel was actually fantastic in it. As She is good. She's
1: great. Um, Will Ferrell, I mean, he hasn't... He's had very mixed stuff recently. I don't think he's... His portfolio's kind of waned a bit for me. I was a big fan of his early stuff, the Saturday Night Live skits. He's, He's brilliant he's hilarious and then some of his big films from that uh old school at the time i like i haven't revisited them and, and anchorman is the, the big one everyone knows i think anchorman still holds up for that random humor um the improv at its best but that style kind of got a little old i think his stick kind of got a little old the sort of over the top shouty man um it, and I sort of, it just doesn't really work. So, yeah. But well, the funniest right. one I ever saw, like, I think it was it
0: called The Other Guys or something like that about the other cops. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. I mean, that one, like, I remember watching that. I think I watched that about three or four years ago. And, you know, I genuinely did, you know, I was bursting out laughing throughout that film because it was, I mean, that was, I think that was kind of him after uh, after that i didn't enjoy his stuff so much but that one i remember enjoying quite a bit it was just ridiculous you know ridiculous it's kind of crazy humor
1: yeah i think it it can go either way with him i remember his, his performance in the lego movie of all films i actually thought it was really good i thought it was suited for that film so he fits in certain things but i mean i think it was um what was the film that came out at the end of last year that was voted one of the worst films in a long time
0: I think um, I know what you mean. Was about um, who was it he was with in that? They were, was it like Watson? brothers
1: or something? Weren't huh? they? Was it was it Watson or something? Oh uh, no no no! It was um uh, uh, was it Sherlock Holmes? Sher- was this, I think it was Sherlock Holmes, like a comedy spoof parody type thing, but it, it looked tasteless. It looked absolutely remorselessly awful. Yeah. So Will Ferrell, uh, yeah, not not uh, not the greatest output recently. Gordon, how are you doing?
3: Yep. All good in the hood. Yep. Um, it's, I was feeling good. I was feeling good yesterday being able to visit the family again, albeit restricted and first time three months to like visit my mom and dad's place and family dog and all that. It was just nice to be back. Although it was just a day trip. Normally I would stay the night and yeah, it was just really good to just feeling we're gradually getting more back to normal, being working a lot. Um, really wanted to it's hard not to be at my mom and dad's house without just delving into just the the piles of dvds the big treasure trove of books and stuff like that it's like it's a library all, all these great we've got all our bond stuff there like our um me and my brother have got all our v- old vhs copies got our bond books and stuff like that and there's all the history books and just oh it's just i really really enjoy being there but just, it was different but you know it was a start and uh it's nice to know you guys as well. Obviously, being able to see family more, it's, it's good getting back in the normal swing of things. So yeah, hopefully that'll progress a bit in the next week or two. People are just... you get People still complain, but the weather has been absolutely spoiled with really hot weather, and it started to rain, and people It's terrible, but I'm, I'm liking having a bit of rain, actually. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I don't have any plans today, so it's not bothering me. Um, my plan to stay in and podcast and watch a film... Not affected by the rain but uh, I am off for the next two weeks so part of me is really I would obviously want the weather just so I can sit out and read my magazines and my books but also part of me really wants to try and work through the increasing backlog again of podcasts and things I want to do for the website which usually means if the weather's nice I won't do that so we'll see how that goes. yeah, it's good to good to hear then you've had a wee bit of normality, Gordon. I think that's kind of what we're all starting to get. Yeah. Uh, now it's it's good. to kind of starting
3: to see the light of this lockdown situation. I enjoyed as well getting out, out of the city and getting into the countryside a bit to sit beside the sea, although the weather wasn't so great yesterday. But that's one of the things I always love about going down to my parents' place because we've not really been able to, just been stuck around the city for a while. But uh, it's all good. We're getting there, um, and as we spoke about on the, the last mini-podcast, you know, it's have still been getting a few films in, so yeah, just trying to relax yep. and I'm not working. Excellent. Good stuff. All right then, uh, myself,
1: I have just been relaxing a lot, um, not doing anything too taxing. I was watching the A View to a Kill Moor commentary last night, Gordon, um, uh, I actually... His style, his dry humor—just, I actually burst out laughing at one point. I mean, it's probably not even as funny to to sort of bring up again, but it was the moment at the beginning when Grace joins us. May Mayday uh, jumps out of the the Eiffel Tower and it's just the way he says it because he was talking right before that he says you know rewatching this I'm getting tired uh, it was you forget how exhausting we were running up those stairs and things like that it was an exhausting shoot and obviously with his age and he says and at, at the moment she jumped out he just says and that's because he said I'm struggling to to get to get down the stairs me and Cubby really were like were, our inside leg was in agony for days after we we walked down the the Eiffel Tower stairwells and then right at that moment Mayday jumps and he goes, Oh, that's one way to get down and or something like, and he just says something like, Of course, you might want to bring a parachute or something like that. It's just this dry sense of humor. I just love it. Yeah, his anecdotes are great. He's such a heartwarming you know personality. I love his commentaries. I'm gonna miss them now that I'm now what I'll be going on to the Dalton ones and I'm guessing he doesn't do them for that. Um but yeah. Although rewatching that film I couldn't tell if I was loving it as much the first time. I think I, I was wanting more of the villains, and I think some of the stuff in the middle of the... Um, uh, I, I don't know, there's a lot of meandering for a bit. I, I think there's actually a good chunk of
3: that could get cut, and it may be a bit pacier film. I don't know. Yeah, well, here's the here's the thing, Steve. There's a few of the Bond films that have got a bit of a reputation that maybe surprises us a bit in this podcast. We're going on to one, one today, obviously, with Die Another Day, but View to a Kill... Is one of the ones that people a lot of people say is, is the worst, but we all really enjoyed it and and took a lot from it, and it, it was kind of a surprise. In the same way as there's, I, I would say, um, like License to Kill and Living Daylights, have a bit of a lukewarm reception with the fans, and they they are ones that surprised us even myself, someone who's seen them a lot, because you always take something new, so <laughs> you never know. Die another day, another one with a bit of a bad reputation. Hopefully we'll t- usually every time I watch that I find I, I do actually <clears throat> there's something new that I like about it. I would say also it's the it's the last there's a bit of a thing with the the last film of a Bond actor. I think I brought this up before, but Connery's um least popular one tends to be his last dimes are forever. And we'll not count Waisenby, of course, one film, but Moore's least least popular again tends to be tends to be View kill. So and then Rosen, again, his last Die Another Day, so there's a bit yeah. of a, a pattern emerging there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can see that from the point of view of
1: definitely and Connery, and I would discount Dalton and Lazenby, because Dalton's, there's two fantastic films, um, and I would say License to Kill somehow even one-ups Living Daylights. Um, yeah, I think I think A View to a Kill is probably my third or second favourite Moore film. So I can't, I think we are kind of going against the grain a lot with these films that our opinions I think with the Bond franchise though I've seen it in common everyone has different opinions on most of them um, sometimes it's when when you first get into Bond it really impacts it this one you mentioned we're talking about D- Diana all day and the tie in to Iceland Steve as well that you spoke about with Brosnan fits this one because this is one of the main settings for for this film the backdrop for this film Let's let's get into this one then. Die Another Day, two thousand and two, released, um, the first after nine eleven, and the the first of the sort of CGI era, really. Um, I would say uh, the pre- predominantly CGI era. Um, yeah, Die Another Day it is, It's only the f- I've only seen this film once in the cinema tellingly and at the time I remember thinking I liked it but I certainly never went back to it again which maybe says something um I don't know if other films came along I know that the Bourne Identity was released just a few months before this film and that sort of took people's uh, kind of made a bit of a storm um so yeah uh Gordon you want
3: to set us up for this one then Sure man the see diner the day then another to set the scene, 2002 was, first of all, um, 40 years since Doctor No, 1962. Whether it was um, timed that way to release in 2002, I'm not so sure. It's also worth noting that this is the last of the kind of Bond films in that universe because from basically, I think, is. Je- I love the background fan, by the way. <laughs> um, Blofeld's <laughs> big all down volcano, I think. Brilliant. Really? Yeah. Um, see, um, so, yeah, what was I talking about? So, 2002, um, so this is meant we're still essentially meant to believe it's the same the same character before the, the reboot with, with Daniel Craig. And also, this was the 20th Bond film, so there was a, a lot of marketing geared towards this been the 20th. And I'll challenge you guys, right, watching this, especially you, Steve, you've seen it for the second time, there's a lot of references because this was the 20th film, there was a lot of references maybe some good and some bad, but references to previous Bond films, there's absolutely hundreds um, similar to Spectre was years later. So I'll challenge you to try and, not that we're going to go through every one in the podcast, but it's just, uh, I wonder if you, how many of these you'll notice, because there's a lot, but I mean, it's a film, it's a film, was a lot of big rewrites and which arguably maybe some were not for the better. Um, there was, this the the, the plot is basically Bond is Bond's investigating a mole in MI6 after a a big mission goes awry. And the there's also at this time a billionaire called Gustav Graves, who just comes out of nowhere, who nobody knows anything about. No one knows anything about his past. He emerges and Bond seems to think there's maybe a link between him and the whole mole situation. And conflict diamonds and a military situation in North Korea. Uh, you know, could this Gustav Graves character, nobody knows anything about him, could he be linked to a lot of uh, strange goings on in North Korea? I mean, so the, the sounds of it, if I was to hear, the, you know, this the bare bones of this plot for the first time, I would think that you know where this this is really going somewhere. This could be some real interesting film, new territory. Yeah. Um, So that's the the main background to Die Another Day. This is another new
1: director. It's telling as well that the producers kept changing directors for the Bond uh, for Brosnan's era. It's almost like they couldn't nail their their directing. Uh, I mean, Martin Campbell I think was offered to come back for Tomorrow Never Dies because obviously he did so well with Goldeneye he refused it. And ever since then they've had three different directors. Now, Bond traditionally from over the last, before GoldenEye, the 16 films before GoldenEye, it was, each director had at least two or three films usually, aside from Peter Hunt, but he was an editor for the entire franchise before then. So it's sort of telling that they just keep changing directors and they're trying to find their footing with that director and it maybe obviously doesn't quite work. The rest of the the crew, still um, the same crew they've had for a while, the same writing team, Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, these are the same writers that would go on to the current day um, the team, uh, obviously, producing Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli, and uh, David Arnold. Gordon, I know you're a you're a fan of David Arnold's work from the last two films. He's doing the the music. So you know there's there's some the 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 rest of the crew are still predominantly the same. Budget wise, this was a huge budget, 142 million, and it made a whopping 431.9 million. Massive success, which is strange considering, obviously, the film critically was very mixed at best so it'll be interesting to to go into that all right then i think we are ready to go guys uh steve have you seen this film
2: i think i've seen the start of it weirdly enough <laughs> right because i remember the north korea references but beyond that i don't think i have
0: yep fran have was you it, seen it was, yeah i've seen it it's um uh it's interesting uh, the success wise i think it did well because it kind of came out in the middle of like quite a like Bond was really kind of popular at this point, I think, and you know, I remember, <clears throat> I remember the film going to see the film was kind of an event, you know, at the time. Uh, but I remember coming out of it and thinking, you know, that some of it, there was some parts of it that I absolutely loved, you know, particularly at the very beginning. But then there was, you know, there was other parts of it that while I was in the cinema, I remember thinking, oh God, like what what is going on here? I mean, it wasn't like you know like bond is dated stuff it was more just it's terrible ad- CGI like yeah. like daft stuff you know but uh, yeah I'm looking forward to seeing it again actually to see what because I've I've not because I didn't like it so much I, I didn't watch it very much after so I, I'll be fresh looking
1: into it I could see there was some I know North Korea and South Korea both had criticisms for the way the film portrayed the countries uh as well as. There was a lot of, apparently, not just that we're going to be looking for Bond references, but a lot of product placement in this film. They had to strip it back for the next one because it got a lot of complaints for being overly saturated with uh, product placement, so we can try and tally up that as well, look out for that. Um, I think it was at 20 different companies were
0: somewhere in there. That pisses me off, man. I would have complained as well. I mean, I don't remember. Maybe it was because I was younger at the time, but, like, if I had to see I a movie... A
1: kid, I would never have picked this stuff up. But It's the sort of thing you only notice now.
0: Well, my dad my dad used to say to me, he used to say, um, do you notice how in all the American films they are all using Apple computers? Hmm. And, and he was pointing that out. He was saying, you know, people don't... You know, you never see anyone use a Windows PC in a Hollywood film, and obviously Apple was pushing that, you know, trying to get their product placement. But it does annoy me because, like, you're paying the ticket to go and see the film. You know, you're paying You're paying already. Do you know what I mean? They're getting their profit. Like, product placement just feels like an insult to the audience, I think.
3: Especially when it's really in your face. Kind of annoying. Yeah. Silly. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, you know, Toby Stevens, he plays Gustav Graves. He went on to narrate certainly some of the Ian Fleming novels as Bond, uh, as audiobook versions. So he plays Gustav Graves. British actor Toby Stevens, Halle Berry's in this one. She plays Jinx Johnson of the NSA. Jinx Johnson? Uh, she had, <laughs> I know. She actually, <laughs> I think she had a co-starring status. With, uh, so it wasn't just starring Pierce Brosnan. It was Pierce Brosnan, Halle Berry, Berry co-starring. And uh, Rosamund Pike is in this. She plays Miranda Frost. I love Rosamund, I think she's a tremendous
1: actress I'm hoping, I'm, I'm assuming she'll I'm looking forward to seeing her, I think she's done some great work Um. I, I, I'm surprised to see her name in this film actually, I don't obviously remember her
0: Actually I'm having a flash of memory I think we're gonna groan we're going to groan and sigh when we see Halle Berry appear. I think with the way things are. I have a, a memory of this. I don't remember fully. I
2: know like, what you're talking to. I, thought, yeah, I hearing think hearing also, try,
1: like, the they try and recreate. Oh, right. I don't I don't remember. Yep. Other things. Right. <laughs> right. I will cut it here. We're going on 23 minutes. Uh. So let's now go and watch Die Another Day come back and go into spoilerific detail of the 20th James Bond film. Bye-bye. And we are back from having watched Die Another Day, the twentieth James Bond film.
3: How do we feel? Why is it? It's just asked me, do I want to quit Skype? It did this before. Can you hold on a a wee minute? Can you hold on a wee minute? Sorry.
1: You sound awful. Anyway, to be honest, it might be better.
2: (laughs) Francis Murphy kicks Gordon Webster from the call.
0: Yeah, I I got impatient. I just thought, fuck (laughs) it.
2: You're really growing into this
1: Blofeld role, aren't you? <laughs>
0: yep, I certainly am. Right, let's add him back in then. Good old Gordy Gord. Right, there we go. Is that
1: the nickname for the rest of the podcast?
0: Because uh, he calls all the Bond actors by like nicknames, you know, like Piercy and and whatever. Shawnee, Sean Connery and all that.
1: That was Big Tam.
0: Big Tam. <laughs> Big two. Um, what was Roger Moore? Rog.
1: Rog,
2: his uh, edge, yeah.
0: It's like it's, it's like pals from down the pub or something, isn't
1: it? Uh, it's like a football team. It's like, pass it to Big Tam. Pass the ball to Rog.
0: Yeah.
2: Timmy D in goals. Yeah. Old Percy.
0: Well, it's, I think this is going to be a very interesting discussion.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually don't know which way this chat's going to go. I'm actually quite intrigued.
0: Hmm.
2: So yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure on where you guys are with this, and whether or not that matches up with me. So, uh, yeah, oh, well, this could I'm be, l- this looking guy. forward
1: to. I love, I love this part of feeling <laughs> the, the <laughs> out with this. <laughs> so, what do you think? <laughs> it's like a poker game. I'm not willing to put my full cards <laughs>
0: down yet. I love this background thing. I, I, I'm going to build a collection of these.
3: Yeah. I'm
2: simply jealous of that. I downloaded a Danger Wheel picture specifically, but it's—I'm just googled it. It doesn't work on Android yet, so one day. I'm
3: gutted, gutted. Am I cut up again? Can you hear me? Can hear you. <laughs> ah, sorry about that. I would have understood if you had started. Sorry. all right. I can only see flat at the moment. That's all you need to see, baby. <laughs> Let's hope it holds out.
1: And we are back from having watched. Die Another Day, the 20th James Bond film. How do we feel that one went, gents? Uh, Let's start with Steve. Cool.
2: So I was, I mean, I'll be honest, I was worried after having seen the awfulness that was The World Is Not Enough and after all the discussions about the actor's final film generally being their worst one. So I didn't go into this film with massively high hopes, but legitimately, I, I enjoyed it. I've genuinely quite enjoyed this one. It had its, it had its downsides. I think the the phrase to sum this one up properly is probably style over substance, because there was a lot of flashy guns and explosions and flamethrowers and weapons and ice hotels and planes and really fancy. I mean, the film looked, apart from some particularly dodgy CGI, the film looked fantastic. But a lot of the time, I think that stuff is plastering over parts of, for example, the script that kind of let it down. Um, Just little bits and pieces, but for the most part, I can legitimately say I enjoy this. The two female characters, um, Jinx and Frost, obviously, uh, Rosamund Pike and Halle Berry, both absolutely brilliant, really enjoyed them. Uh, The main villain as well was, again, particularly suitably psychotic, So the characters were great. The script wasn't anywhere near as lazy or as stupid as it was in The World Is Not Enough, which was a massive plus. But for the most part, this is one of these films, I think, similar to perhaps The Tomorrow Never Dies, where if you're not a Bond fan or if you're coming into the franchise from nowhere having not seen anything and you're just looking for one Bond film to just kind of kick back and watch, this is probably one that I would put on that list of films to recommend. It's maybe not completely up there in the context of all twenty, but it's it's not the absolute shit show I thought it would be. It was actually I I can genuinely say I like this one,
3: and I'm now wow. completely
2: nervous because I'm facing a wall of silence and I don't quite know how everyone else is going to react. Yeah, I'll I'll go
1: next then. I normally, usually I'm the last or or the first, but I'll 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 go next. That. I completely agree with the with the look of the film in terms of cinematography. For me, that was the, one of the takeaways that I really enjoyed. There was a couple of shots that I thought were absolutely beautiful. The shot underwater was one of them. Um, you know, And some, some of the actual vistas and things like that. And again, it was a unique setting. We haven't seen that really as much as we've seen Bond in sort of snowy out sort of areas, skiing and things like that. I've seen it in multiple films. Oh, Gordon's left. They didn't like what I was about to say. Um, But we'll continue anyway. Essentially, I thought uh, Iceland, and they obviously filmed in Norway and and things like that, but Iceland is the main setting, was a great setting. That, to me, is one of the only things I really took that I really loved, if I'm honest. I did like Rosamund Pike uh, in this film. Uh, I do really like her as an actress. But as a film, I thought it was unbelievably disjointed from a tonal point of view. I thought the the beginning set up really set us up for what could have been a really fascinating character piece Bond being tortured Bond going through a lot and that stuff is dropped completely dropped like it, it, it forgets that he went through this harrowing experience and then it becomes a sort of showcase of how much money do we have to spend on CG um, which I thought was awful for the first time so that stuff let, let me down and where it tried to be funny it didn't work for me. I didn't laugh at anything that happened legitimately apart from one line that Bond says when he ordered his drink at the bar and mentioned if you've got any ice to spare because he's in an ice palace and I th- for some reason that caught me off guard. But that was about it. Um, villain, I, I I, I can... I'm not sure what I, th- I thought of the villain if I'm honest. Um, is it Toby Stevens, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. The bait and switch type thing. Um. Yeah. It. It was okay, and the silliness of the invisible car really stretched it for me. Um. We've seen Bond in space. We shouldn't be too surprised when they really push it out there, and having a laser battle in space. We've already seen that, and that that sort of craziness. So we, it's not that insane, I suppose. But somehow it was. Uh. I'll let somebody else
0: speak. Fran, what were wh- wh- you landing with that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, have always felt that this film veered off into the kind of uh, the unbelievable in in a way that I thought I, I felt disappointed by it. The reason for that is that um, when we had, I mean, as we've gone through the eras of Bond, we've gone from Roger Moore to Timothy Dalton. Uh, so Roger Moore got kind of silly and. Dadish, and there was all these one-liners and then we get to timothy dalton and it gets quite dark and quite you know quite real and then golden eyes quite like that and then this is a slow slide through the rest of brosnan and to the point where you have things like the aforementioned invisible car and um ice palace and a big weapon made out of God knows what that reflects. The sundown and people having their—I mean—the most ridiculous thing is people being DNA changed into other people. I mean, that is just—I mean, that's that's like the plot of a bad Star Trek Next Generation episode. I mean, it's—it's it's, it, it, its just too. I think it's the first time really that the plot has been more unbelievable than Bond's interactions with women. Do you know what I mean? It's—it's—it's—it's <laughs> it's, 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 it's gone completely the other way, and and it's just it makes, it, you know, I don't have any patience for that, I suppose. I mean, that's why uh, uh, Casino, this is why Casino Royale, the next film, is such a refreshing change. And it's because yeah. it takes it back to where it where Bond should be. You know, it shouldn't be... Another thing that's quite tired, actually, and, it, and, and this is a big trope when it comes to your sci-fi movies, and especially, you know, Marvel and things like that now, is that it's always an end-of-the-world story. It's yeah. always a you know a big bad is about to destroy the planet or whatever or take over or or something like that whereas sometimes you just want to see a secret agent sneaking around to try and get a document or something like that or to to find out about someone who's maybe a kind of a just you know like in Casino Royale where it's all about guys who are embezzling money and things like that you know yeah it's that sort of thing and I, I I don't know. I mean, I just it's, it's switched the, it's off. The fight be- it's the fight between action hero and spy film.
1: This was action film. This wasn't a spy film. It was a spy film in a sort of background setting alone, but it's an action film. This is an action film.
0: And the spy bits were silly. I mean, like when he puts the guy in the wheelchair and he wheels him in, then knocks him off and climbs through the window at the side. I mean, that's like your little spy bit he's done, you know, and, and it's... He does a bit of sneaking around, I mean, when he drove the invisible car up behind those guys, how could they not have heard it?
2: <laughs> or seen the tracks?
0: Uh-huh. I mean, I would have turned around and, and looked at it and been like, guys, there's, there's, there's car tracks coming up behind us and there's an engine, you know, I would have, I would have <laughs> mentioned it, you know? I mean, is it, does it cloak the sound as well? I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and just the one-liners to me were too much in this film as well, like... um. I mean, it wasn't just Bond, it was like every single character suddenly just became aware of the fact there was a camera on them. Like, they, they, <laughs> you know, it was like Big Brother Bond or something, it was like they, you know, they were all just playing up for the camera, you know, all I the think
2: time. It, it the was bad more guy ever- did it. Yeah. it.
0: You know, like everybody was waiting for their moment, it was like the moment they were born for,
3: you know. Gordon, what about yourself? Where where, where do you land with this? Yeah, since my broadband reconnected, from what I've heard, I would I would echo what you guys are saying, yeah, I can't really disagree with that too much for me. Well,
1: yeah, sorry, but I don't know if you heard Steve. I don't know if you cut out. I think you heard Steve, didn't you? Steve, obviously, was more more positive on the film. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. and yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think you cut out when I was speaking, so it's okay. Sorry, I'll let you continue.
3: I mean, it is an entertaining film in parts, but I feel I feel sorry for Brozen because he had a lot to offer as Bond, and like I said before, he wasn't given the best material to work from, no original Fleming stories and just just not great screenwriting, especially this film. It's I think it depends when I watch this, every so often I watch it and I realise there's some some good touches to it that I've forgotten about. But I think after recently really indulging myself in in a lot of the older Bond films and we even more recent studies of the grounded ones like The Living Daylights and Licence to Kill it it's uh it can be a hard one to swallow this film. Way too much overuse of terrible CGI, some absolutely terrible dialogue at times.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, it makes yeah. me cringe a lot of it. Um the worst point of the entire film, the big tsunami wave. I mean uh, I can't oh, get over man. that.
2: Yes. Weirdly
3: oh. enough. <laughs> Weirdly <laughs> enough, I find some of the music good. And I've get, there's, a, there's a particular piece I've got stuck in my head, the way you often get a good song stuck in your head. So, you know, it's not all bad. But, I, yeah, I do feel sorry for Brosnan because he was just, um, especially in the latter films, he was gradually just put in the middle of some over-the-top action scenes. And I think he had so much more to offer. I mean, you look at you look at what we got out of Casino Royale. I mean, I imagine Brosnan get the chance with a, a script like that and an, an original story. You know, yeah. I, I feel yeah. bad for him and that, you know, I, I don't really feel you can fault him too much in this film. Some of, it's the, some of the supporting cast as well, I think, uh, I just, just don't work well for me at all, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag, you know, it's, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting towards one of the, again, one of the war points of the whole franchise for me. Do you think yeah. it's possible, Gordon, that the entire movie is Bond having delusions
0: while he's still captured?
3: <laughs>
0: that he's I know. Still- well,
3: see, you, you, yeah, you hinted it. Um, kind of ideas like that with diamonds or forever. Just, uh, yeah. it's just like this psychedelic trip for an <laughs> yeah. hour and a half to two hours in the. <laughs> it's. I think it's some of the, some of the action scenes in particular. I actually think the film is. It starts, I agree with what you say, Steve, Mr. Barry, about the, the first half of the film showed some real promise and it. it went down a bit of an awkward path and it just started to overindulge in action a bit too much. Icarus? Nah. Nah. <laughs> I'm not having that. Um, Mr. Kill, The Invisible Car, <laughs> God's sake. Nah, that's, it's just not Bond class for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Madonna's theme song, um was one of the first kind of moment where it was like... Uh. I mean, the song itself is actually quite catchy. And you can imagine that playing in a club, and it'd be kind of fun to dance to. But it doesn't work in that scene, and it's trying to show a really horrendous year of Bond's life where he is being tortured. And there's this... I thought, mm disco dance theme I guess I'll die another day as he's getting fucking his head put in the water and <laughs> it's tortured it's
0: and I know stung by uh, scorpions and everything I mean, it is yeah. like so
2: Tonally bizarre
1: awful. chokes the position that is where they, they lost control of like what they want to do with this film they didn't have a clear vision um, and they kind of just let the sort of the silliness and humour take over again, well, what they thought was humour, but it didn't work. Um, I think that Bond theme, let's just tackle that first, as soon as I've mentioned it, I think that would have worked, in that, you know, some of the lyrics or whatever could have worked if they had, like, the the style of Billie Eilish's version, that haunting, sort of, slow-paced kind of thing, that could have worked.
2: Even something more sinister to go over uh, the torture scenes, absolutely. It was the I mean the the lyrics are actually perfectly fitting for that song. It's the style of music that doesn't fit. It's a complete tonal um juxtaposition to the
1: action it feels like someone did did a remix of a song that we already know that really worked with someone and someone did a fun crazy remix like it feels like a youtube video where someone would edit it together to try and make as a joke (laughs) that's the actual version
0: it's almost like um it's that tail end of the simon cowell pop era isn't it um you know as you get to 2002 music was very surface for a while um, pop music when you kinda of went to your like say 1996, 97, to like your early two thousands. Um I, you know, you had a lot of music that just sounded quite there's kind of a tinny kind of surface sound to it. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like you had your you had a lot of other music, you had your brit pop stuff, other genres, but the pop music wasn't very interesting at the time, I don't think. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it was the, the best quality.
2: Madonna was going through one of our kind of experimental phases, I think, at the time. It was not long after the music album yeah, i don't think and was... i wonder to what extent they've maybe been trying to get madonna to do a bond theme for ages because she'd in theory and if you think of the sort of previous caliber of singers who have done bond films she would actually she's i'm surprised she hasn't done one before but they've obviously been trying to get her for ages perhaps and then she's gone right fine i'll do this one and then she's dropped up and pitched that yeah i've so oh, kind of gone oh I shit this doesn't work but we have to use it yeah, I
1: noticed. she didn't write it or anything. She only performed it, so it was written for her. I don't know how much input she would have had,
2: lyrically or musically. I wonder. It, it just says, says
1: per- she didn't write anything. Or- it says just says performed by Madonna. Ah. So there was writers and producers. I know William Orbit. I think was the. I don't know if he produced it or or what. I don't know who wrote the lyrics. I don't know, but it just says performed by Madonna. So I don't know to an extent, how much input she
3: had. Um, that to be said for what, what you, Steve, said earlier about the the, the crew changing. And, you know, a different production crew, I don't think there was anyone um, that was well-associated with the franchise involved in lyrics this time. Because even some of the... I find even some of the more forgettable previous title songs, they maybe had one or two lyrics that related to Bond. Well, yeah, I can even say with World's Not Enough. I can, it's got the like about there's no point in living if you can't feel alive. And you know, when we go into Casino Royale, there's like there's tons of lyrics in there you can attribute to Bond. But seeing this song, it's just what Sigmund and Freud analyze this. Um, I know. I know. Did, I know. They remotely relates to Bond and, and those lyrics is Die Another Day. And <laughs> it's not even the best title for a film.
1: It's actually quite poor. And the way they shoehorn it into the film, it just. Uh it was a roll roll your eye kind of moment in fact
3: see the
0: the music in the whole film I actually found I struggle to remember any of the music from the film I actually didn't think it was very noticeable this time around
2: it wasn't there was one good use I think of the Bond theme was it perhaps in the pre-title sequence when Bond was escaping but beyond that nothing actually grabs my attention
0: yeah,
1: yeah, it wasn't quite as good. I know, Gordon, you're uh, quite you liked it, and I think there was moments where it might have helped the action. I just can't tell if it was drowned out by the silliness and the absurdity of so many of what things of what you're watching that, that I wasn't really uh, taken in with the music, but I de- it definitely didn't help too much. Uh, I, I didn't. It was to me. It wasn't as good as his production and and the music f- for uh, the world is not enough. I think that was his high point of the three that we've had. Yeah, that's
3: exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, hold on a minute. I wouldn't this music, a complete pass. I think there's, there's good points in this score, but I don't think it's as good as uh, The World's Not Enough, and, and it's way off the, the real high point of Tomorrow Never Dies. I think, I don't like the, the sort of techno bits so much, and I don't know if yeah. like, gonna relate that yeah. to Madonna's theme. I like the bits, again, you've got those wow trumpets, just for a fleeting moment. I feel the Bond theme could have been used Better and um, I didn't I didn't mind. It was kind of cool hearing that the Clash song because it was for a it was for a fleeting moment. Again, and I don't think that was the 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 worst point, but um, not not one of the best scores. Good and part I really liked actually. Um, as much as I get very irritated by Jinx, that there was a sort of theme for her that that's the one that stuck in my head right at the end when. With the the finale between Bond and her, and then when she comes out of the water, it is actually a good theme. It's not the best scene, but it's a it's a good theme. And also when uh, Bond and Zao meet, um, on the bridge with the the fog enveloping the two of them, it's quite a tense sounding theme. I thought that worked well, but yeah, it's it's not um not one of Arnold's best scores. Uh,
1: okay, let's let's take it from the beginning. Then let's talk about the pre-title sequence. Quite a long one again. Uh, a lot happens in that pre title sequence, um and, you know, it sets us up for the for the main plot of the film similar to The World Is Not Enough. Uh how do we how do we feel about that? One of the strong points of the film?
2: I would just say they've they've kind of hit the, the sort of perceived cruelty of North Korea quite well. Like the, the guy inside the punch bag who was getting the crap kicked out of him and was then let out. That kind of setting the scene of just how sort of Brutal things are in some of these camps in North Korea. There was sort of a lot of rumors and stuff about that at the time. I think, from a sort of tonal point of view, they got that spot on. Um, I don't know if there's much more sort of beyond. That. It was a, it was a decent pre title sequence, but that was, I think, sort of tonally, I think they got that about right. It then slowly started to sort of slide from there. I think with with some elements, but yeah. that particular, I think, was was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did. I did appreciate some of that i wasn't sure where it was going um it was a bit drawn out maybe but i definitely did like the, the the feel of it it's just a shame that well the film doesn't match that i suppose um i'd almost it's almost like we should have went with something that might have fitted the rest of the film but no uh no i did like it fran what was your thoughts
0: i, f- I feel similarly about the the opening sequence i suppose i mean the, there was some fantastic bits in there uh, I mean, when it started, I mean, I had no problem with the, the whole rocking up and taking over someone's role and sneaking in to try and do the deal with the North Korean guy, the corrupt guy. Um, And then, you know, the start of the battle, but the battle became unbelievable at the moment that the guy said that he could get over the landmines with hovercraft. And I just thought to myself. If that was true, then this war would have been over a long time ago. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's how many years? You know, sixty years or something, fifty years, sixty, maybe seventy, even sixty-five. That those mines have been there, um, and then from that point, you know, we had a, a, a it kind of flew into the unbelievable with the big battle on hovercraft, and then it went back to being believable again when you saw the um as you guys have said when when he Bond get captured and taken to be tortured, um. I think we got to see, uh, and what was interesting was that we got to see not only how they were treating Bond, but there were sequences where they were dragging Bond through rooms with what seemed to be dozens of other prisoners, all getting tortured, all in rags, you know, just this horrible environment. Um, And uh, again, the bridge section, was that after the sequence? I think that was after, after the titles, wasn't it, the bridge yeah, um,
2: that was really well scripted. That yeah, as were.
0: Um, but yeah, the you know the the torture sequence itself was great. With the title music was obviously not good enough. But I'm convinced, you know, if they'd kept that that see that tone that they had, if they did a different title track and they kept the tone of the kind of more serious bits at the start, and up to some part past the title sequence, like when M leaves him in the room after he's getting his medical stuff done. That's where the film went off the rails. That whole bit was great. I liked
3: that. And I liked his flashbacks as well. So yeah, I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Gordon? Yeah, I completely agree. If they'd kept that tone I think this film could have worked really well. I, I quite liked the pre-titles. Quite liked it. I liked Bond um, sneaking in undercover. He seems to have a couple of other MI6 operatives with him. I don't know. Were they not South? They, were they not South Koreans, Gordon? I think they might have been South Korean agents. Yeah, working for, well, working for MI6. I mean, that was, was my take on it. Or they're, they're allied. Put it this way, they're yeah. allies. So we'll see, yeah. like Bond a, yeah. a couple of allies. I don't see what what is um, what's particularly subtle about showing up in surfboards, though. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I might even notice. By, Didn't you know, Gordon? North possible. Korea is like the number one destination for surfers. I know. Well that's that's like what Steve McCall said about going for style, maybe. So that, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but um I thought there was a there's a great deal of tension when when Bond meets Colonel Moon and um he's I liked again, I enjoy Bond. It's true to the, the spy world and true to the, the original Bond character. of have using an alias and uh, you know, put, he's basically switched identities with the guy who I think was selling the conflict diamonds. And there's a great deal of tension when you notice before Bond does that he's about to get his cover blown when Zal finds out who he is. Um, there's some there's some gadget bits that don't work. I quite liked the... I think was it the watch or the ring he used to create the explosion. Um, it seems it's as though the, a few of the little diamonds get sort of encrusted in Zal's face. And it's funny how it takes him to about halfway through the film to actually remove them. I, I wonder they're there? still there for a reason it's, it's kind of weird but yeah I agree that the hover I mean I would say the hovercraft sequence it, it was well shot in that they um, I think they did use some kind of of actual hovercrafts or they did use you know some sort of um, real vehicles to simulate hovercrafts and Brosnan actually did a lot of those scene, scenes himself obviously a bit stunned with that I mean that was quite well done but that's when you're the CGI first creeps in. I, I I gotta say I really I really really appreciated seeing Bond in a uh, a torture scene because we've never seen that with Bond before. It's been hinted at in some of the novels, and that's a new setting for Bond, and I think that is really good. And like we were saying, like if they maybe kept that tone of the film going, I think these sort of hero spy characters, you um you've got to see them being captured and 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 putting a a torture sequence and it's the fact that MI the the tone of how then after the pre-titles how MI6 just disavow him you know is uh, yeah it's it's new territory for for 007.
1: I quite quite like that right because I was worried the way that they portray the relationship between M and Bond over the three films that there's a warmth that develops over you know from the intro to from GoldenEye from that frostiness that was there to the world is not enough, and I thought, you know, I, I wouldn't. I don't want to bring in the whole sexist argument, but it does feel like they would never have done that sort of thing with any previous M. You know, they never had that. It was always stern relationship. It never changed. But maybe it was probably better that there was an arc as well. But it was also nice to see that sort of real steely um, relationship that, that they had in this film. That it, all that mattered really was the mission. And he was expendable, no matter who he was. I quite liked that. I think that was good. Yeah, that I was
3: well done. That... The scenes with with Bond and M were good in this film, actually. And yeah, yeah, appreciated also the way that it's true to Bond's character. No matter how terribly they tortured him, he wouldn't talk. You know, the the kind of the older Colonel Moon, senior Colonel Moon, says to him, "You." three years and you've not said a word that you know that's true bond that's what bond would do m says but you had your cyanide and he's like threw away years ago you know that's that's kind of true to the character i appreciate when he was he was on board the the ship and <laughs> they they're like analyzing what sort of state of condition he's in and they're like oh poor lover, that's him all right you know Bond and he's he's yeah. over drinking, over smoking that, and then what I liked and I think this may have been a throwback to one of the novels, There was one of the, the Fleming novels, I think it might have been Goldfinger where Bond actually he kind of asphyxiates himself, he knows how to knock himself out, I don't know if that's where they were maybe hidden at he goes down and then he, he suddenly, he goes to the cardiac arrest, it's a bit maybe implausible mm-hmm. how he, he suddenly knows how to use Heart monitor things to get himself out, but I, th- I thought that might have been a nice throwback to the novels. It was the it was the first of many throwbacks that.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about that then. The references then. So you'd mentioned in our chat, Gordon, on the WhatsApp that there was loads already, and I, they'd all went over my head as I started the film. continued, I started to notice them. You know, let's let's try and list a few just to. There was a jetpack. There was the laser from probably Goldeneye. there was
2: shoe. a club
1: shoe was there
3: um i noticed the the most obvious ones was when he went with the john cleese cue through the lab yeah. and there was things you guys i even saw the the pretend crocodile from octopussy i, I was didn't there
1: that. what was the was it octopussy the the, the sort of jet thing the plane Little.
3: Oh, the actors star plane, yeah, the little mini plane was there, yeah, and the, I think you need to look hard for that one, Steve, I, and also, this was actually later on, he uses the, it's like a modern version, I know this scene was pretty implausible and stupid, but he uses, it's like a modern version of the rebreather from Thunderbolts, the wee kind of cylindrical device he puts in his mouth to help him breathe, I mean, God is, there's no way you're going to be able to breathe in ice water and survive, but anyway, I, I I suppose I liked the way that that he gets a modern version of the little rebreather. That was kind of <clears> cool.
1: There was a. probably the Goldfinger reference. Was probably the fact when Jinx is about to get the laser, she's strapped to a board with a laser that's about to kill her. I think that was probably a reference to Goldfinger. Definitely, uh-huh. yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. I think, do you know a few of the more subtle ones? I mean, they, these were even ones I probably didn't notice till most of them until I watched it this time, but. But he's. I, I thought when he's fighting on the roof of the hovercraft with, with Colonel Moon, maybe like the 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 train roof fighting Octopus. You've got him. You've got him out in the water and uh, around the sort of far east where he just swims up in the shore into Hong Kong. Um, without he's totally under the radar. It's kind of like you only live twice when when he's meant to be dead and he suddenly appears on the shore and goes into Tokyo. I thought as well. Um when he's, he's then subsequently with five minutes later, he's in the hotel room and the, the <laughs> the head of the hotel and a couple of guys are spying him through the glass. Bond breaks glass. It's kind of like from Russia with love when him and Tatiana are in the room and Spectre are watching them. And then, yeah, um, there's a, there's a few other things. I think that see the most, one of the most obvious goldfinger ones, it was Bond and Gustav Graves had the, the fencing duel. And Bond, I mean, it was pretty poorly done when you compare it to the the class of the the Goldfinger golf scene. But in the way that Bond uh, uses the the gold bar to as the you know to say this is the winnings, <laughs> he does um, a similar thing with the conflict diamond, shows it to Graves, he says, let's play for this, you know. So again, that's I did appreciate the the fact that they are, Bond's doing the classic thing of in a duel with a villain. And he betters the villain, despite, you know, not being that, you, you know, Bond's not exactly a world-class fencer, but he turns the tables. That was kind of good, you know.
1: I want to talk about the fencing scene, but before I go into that, I just want to remind that scene with Q, the new Q, John Cleese's Q. Um it felt like they were taking us on one of those Bond exhibitions that we went to in the 90s, just sort of like, let's <laughs> yeah. see all the different <laughs> paraphernalia and <laughs> props and things like that. Um, you know, appreciated some level, but a bit meta, a bit weird. The fencing scene then with uh, Gustav, what, what did we think of that?
2: It was. Yeah, we what... too long, too drawn out. It, was, it felt a little bit. Um... It just I felt it got a bit it got a bit daft. It was unnecessarily long, anyway. Um and the way that I suppose you kinda have to expect Bond to be good at absolutely everything, and that somehow includes fencing, just like it did surfing. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that it went from that to suddenly it kind of escalated completely out of nowhere to right, let's turn this into a real sword fight with genuine swords, which then I think a samurai sword came out at one point. And then it was suddenly trashing, sort of Bullingdon Club style, trashing this sort of club, bashing their way through for minutes on end. It just went on for unnecessarily long periods of time. I think that could have been cut quite significantly to sort of no uh, real detriment to the film.
0: Yeah, and like, wouldn't somebody phone the police? Like, I mean, if there was two guys anywhere running around with lethal weapons, do you know what I mean? Stabbing each other and, you know, smashing the place to smithereens. There's got to be some person there who's just an observer who's going to look over and be like, right, I'm I'm phoning the cops
3: the now. You know?
2: May I just suggest that it happens all the time?
3: It's probably like, um, <laughs> you know how, the, you know that club? It's probably because Graves has got so much money and resources he owns. The club is like, and Goldfinger bonds like, what well, the club secretary have to say, in Goldfinger's like, I own the club, so probably I, Gustav
1: uh, owns yeah. it. Uh, that's probably actually, t- yeah, I'd say that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was strange. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about the villains then. So, how do how do we how do we feel about them? How do we main villain Gustav Graves? Where does he sit with you guys?
2: I think he came into his own towards the end. Particularly, he was a suitably psychopathic villain i think he suited i mean the whole icarus um using the sun's power to blow up stuff plan it suited him uh the english accent in particular i know it's kind of something of modern american films in particular where everyone who's a bad guy has to have that particular british accent that nicer that particular more upper class english accent and it works there i think but he came into his i think he came into himself more towards the end he was a little bit kind of I think annoying at the start. I did like the twist. It did take me a bit of time to work out that he'd gone through the DNA process and he was the dead son of the North Korean general, etc. Um, but I, I mean, he was—he's definitely not memorable. I don't think anyone's going to have him in a sort of top ten Bond villains. Yeah. But he—he he wasn't completely terrible. I don't think he was suitably psychopathic. I think.
0: Okay. Yep. Fran. I don't know. I I, I just... Uh, when we first meet the guy in North Korea, he's basically a a corrupt son of a general who wants money and nice cars and things like that. Then he gets this idea about using this sun weapon to... I, I don't know, was he, he was trying to clear the mines from the, the zone or something like that.
1: A demilitarized zone, yeah.
0: Yeah, but he already had hovercraft that could go across the mines. so. You know, I mean, it was kind of a mixture of he wanted some money, he wanted to clear the mines and he for no reason, and he also wanted his daddy to like him, you know? Like, I'm a good son, daddy, I'm all about the North Korean stuff, like, I'm gonna blah blah blah, and it's like... Yeah, There's
1: good daddy issues and amongst all of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, he electrocutes his own dad to death and things like that. I mean, I don't know, I just... <laughs> I was a wee bit bored with him, and I also wondered how long it took him. Like, did the DNA transformation also change his accent? Like, how, did he practice for a long time, like for years? To
1: but let's talk about that because, right? So, what? Fourteen months is how long Bond was in in their captive. He was uh, for fourteen months, right? So that's just over a year, right? You can do a lot of things in a year, you know, uh, and that that process probably could have taken up a majority of that time maybe I don't know if it's overnight, who knows right but, so he built an an ice palace in that time right, as well as all of that other stuff, everything
0: yeah, (laughs) one night well well, it's not just that, it's like I'm guessing that the ally he had in England was the original Graves yeah, because Graves I think he got his DNA and changed into Graves I think that's basically Uh, what's applied
1: I thought it was that Graves had not been a person until then and then he appeared nowhere. appeared. that was a surprise that this philanthropist and uh fame and wealth came out of nowhere and
0: there was that's why
1: the press were so interested in him
0: i mean i, I guess that would make sense i mean i was never too clear I, I i always thought that there might be like some subtle idea that that his ally i guess his ally was miss frost really but i mean i always kind of thought maybe there was a Graves there before. Because where did he get the DNA? Maybe it could have just been some random white guy that he got the DNA from to turn into Graves, you know? But basically, like, I mean, it's very difficult to just create an identity. I mean, when you get born, you get assigned a national insurance number and stuff like that, and you get, like, a, a record on the c- computer in Britain. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you want to apply for a job and stuff. Like, I do not think th-
2: if anyone worked that stuff out, it would be MI6. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, like, I mean... The police would be very interested in a British citizen who just appeared out of nowhere on their 35th birthday or whatever. Like, he has no bank account records, no record of employment, no school, no nothing, no hospital visits. Like, I guess maybe if the professionals in Cuba were able to manufacture not only a new body, but an entire identity. I, mean, I don't know. I Absolutely. mean, it just, yeah, I mean, the press wouldn't be the only ones interested, I'll put it that way like surely someone else is going to be like i mean we we know that mi6 is watching all these rich guys already in the past like the you know surely they would have been watching graves i suppose they were with miss frost but like i don't know miss frost was a traitor wasn't she so i guess she didn't report back i don't know, yeah. but it, would, I know. it would take like a a job centre agent 2 seconds to look up graves and see that he wasn't real you
3: know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i quite liked Graves and the the fencing He's all right. He's um yeah, Steve. uh you were kind of right. He's he's not going to be in your <laughs> your top ten. or even maybe top top fifty, top twenty four. <laughs> he's uh, he's a smarmy character. He's you're a gambling man, Mr. Bond. You know, he's uh he's kind of he's maybe I kind of liked. He's he's looking. He's just his smarminess. He's a, he's an adrenaline junkie. Um, I th- but he's it's kind of taking things too far. How he has to. Um, come down and onto like is it outside Buckingham Palace on a on a um, parachute. <sighs> Ridiculous. Was that
1: meant to be a callback as well? I take it with the yeah,
3: yeah, must have been eye to spyhole of me. Yeah, I think that the idea that he doesn't sleep at all is utter nonsense, and I think the idea yep. that um, that he um, was able to change his identity from some South Korean colonel is just absolutely absurd. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, the the writing is the main issue with this film, let's face it. There's so much absurdity and just really, really strange choices. This is a lot of that comes through in the plot and the characters. Um, but the CG and the, the actual stunts, and the, I suppose let it down a little with that side of it. But yeah,
3: it's just baffled by a lot of that.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, I find as well, Graves seemed to have a. Uh... It's like every, almost every line he had, it was some witticism. When the press were asking questions, he knew ex- in an instant how to give a smart one-liner to the press. He's just like, um, life's too short. Why, why he on sleep? How are you meant to believe
1: that's the guy we saw at the beginning of the pre-title sequence that's probably never been to Britain? I know, sometimes I
3: thought um, his, his delivery was a, a bit a bit poor. I, I kind of like Toby Stevens, and of course um, it's, it's nice how his um, relationship with the Bond franchise contained, because he's like, you know, done these audiobooks. Yeah, I mean, he's a good actor. It's similar to how, I mean, you can't really deny Halle Berry ha- Halle Berry is a, a great actress, and you know, she, she went into this film, I think, in the back of an Oscar, but uh, I, I really can't I hate, I just really can't stand her what? in this film. I think a lot of that's down to the writing. What is it that
1: because you've said it a couple of times, what what is it that
3: really annoys you about her performance? It's the delivery um, but part of it I think you can put down to the poor quality of the writing the The lines like, who sent you here, your mama That, yeah, that's, <laughs> that I just cringe lines like that, I just cringe and then then um, she says something like I'll always be a jinx to you and the, the end sequence um there's, there's so many. I mean, part I think a lot of it is the writing. Really, it's yeah. um, just there's, there's real cheesiness. It's hard to, and I don't even know. I mean, did the NSA actually send agents out to just kill and cold blood? There's that scene with her in the, the genetic clinic where that the guy, um, the guy behind the desk, he seems like maybe just some, someone who's, who's maybe helped Zal and Graves with their plan, but there's not there's nothing really to suggest that she has to kill him. She just shoots him in cold blood and you've got that um, (laughs) weep. She's just, she's kind of a a bit like a comic book character. I think they're the right idea again of let's have a, let's have another female agent who, um, who can be an ally of Bond that's, you know, just, uh, just as capable as him who, um, who kind of there's one-up and shit between her and Bond. That's a good idea. But um, you're getting more into sort of fancy territory, I think. Well, um, see, I think. See see the bit where she says, yo mama, right? Uh,
0: uh, I mean, you can tell that that's literally what the scriptwriter thought a black person would say. I know. Oh. A cringe. A cringe. I never,
1: I never, yeah I, I don't. Cringe I
3: don't know. I never thought of that, but it's... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it it is is it it's,
1: it's
0: It's like someone from the hood or something like that. Do you know what I mean? It's like Jinx grew up in the hood and she graduated uni and then went and became an agent, climbed up through society or whatever, but she's still got the hood in her, you know? It's like, for God's sake, you know, it would be like one of us like suddenly reverting to being a Ned or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs>
3: Yeah, Some of the mom. <laughs> I know it, oh, it's, it's bad. The yeah. bit, oh, see, see, when she has the fight with uh, Miranda Frost, then, um, when she sticks the sword through Frost, she's like, Take that, bitch. Oh. oh, come on. No, oh, I mean, this is a Bond film, that's you know, that's. Just not good enough. This is listen, man, this is the the twentieth Bond film. They should have pulled out all the stops to get everything right in this film. And they're giving us nonsensical lines like that. And yeah. then when she the the scene again, you know, put a lot of this down the writers or the director. When she's coming out of the ocean, I love the music there. I like when you know that a lot of the camera works good. It's like they're telling the Halle Berry to like exaggerate the movement of her hips. It's just you know they've, yeah. given, they've given her the, this uh, over exaggerated walk and so, see some of that dialogue between her and Bond. This is as much down to Bond uh, as her at the the beach. Some of that dialogue is terrible. It's like she's like Bond says I'm an ornithologist and she says well that's a mouthful. You know, Listen, how's that like, a mouthful? I'm like, ornithologist? We all know what an ornithologist is. There's nothing- I mean, there's no exaggeration to say this, right? But see if anyone
0: said what Bond said today, they would be under arrest, probably, or they would be they would be at least, like, tweeted out, like somebody would recorded it and tweeted Bond out, saying, look at this guy, like Bond, saying... I enjoy the view and all this kind of thing like you know just it would be instantaneous Bond's career would be destroyed do you know what I mean like you don't you don't get away with that like I mean it's it's just it's just I guess that's where like even things as recent as 2002 where it's it, you know it's kind of looking at it and you're thinking to yourself like did anyone ever really do that do you know what I mean did, is that the way things were because it it just seems so cringeworthy it's so cringeworthy when he says that, that.
2: That entire section of the film was terrible. From the point where Jinx... I mean, I, I, I got the references. Jinx coming out of the water was meant to echo the whole scene from Doctor No, right? But from, right, from, from that scene... That's right, yes. But from, from that scene, that conversation, to Bond's <laughs> it's which is one of the more graphic um, sex scenes I think we've had. That was yeah. a little more explicit than any of us expected. But that entire section was... The conversation was nonsensical. How the hell they ended up in bed together, where that came from, what triggered that, <laughs> is utterly baffling. I don't understand where that came from. That <laughs> section, I, I can see why they had to establish that relationship. But, I mean, that was worse. Establish than, it? They, I mean,
0: like I don't even sorry. know if that's what they would use. <laughs> well, that's what I'm
2: saying. They they, that, that relationship had to be established, but they didn't do it. They had a, a weird conversation about owls. <laughs> and then they do, you know what's,
0: do you know what's so disturbing about this actually what disturbs me about it is that bond films is like you know you're a lot of your demographic will be families going to see bond films and especially like at the time it would be young boys maybe 12 13 14 going to see this and thinking like you're gonna walk out of that thinking that's how you talk to women <laughs> i mean yeah. i think bond maybe has a lot to answer for in terms of like some of the cringe-worthy moments people have had and like you know, st- like, cause, cause, if an innocent kid goes in and sees this, they're not going to know any better, are they? They're just going to think they're just going to see a powerful male figure talking to a woman and being successful or whatever, and you know that they, they, they you know they're responding positively to him. And yeah, it's you know there's probably like hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of wee guys that have gone out there and tried to do that and just made their life a misery. You know, honestly, and a
2: sudden upsurge in people studying ornithology
0: yes exactly I mean we all know that he's talking about we're looking at birds you know I mean that's basically the yeah. idea but you know I'm amazed that um, that an American would get that do they call women birds in the States I mean that's a
3: very English very British kind of reference isn't it yeah it's just the, that dialogue trying to equate um, their relationship to birds is just it's so amateurish and then um, they, they've clearly sort of done their business they're in bed. She brings out a knife. Oh, this, you know, this what's going to happen here? And then she gets out a bit of watermelon. <laughs> oh my god! I know. I, know.
0: <laughs> I was waiting for someone to mention that. Actually, watermelon. Oh yeah, my uh, god! I mean, next the thing, you know, next thing, you know, they're going to order a KFC afterwards. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. so bad, it's so bad.
1: Yeah, that, oh, it's really bad. I, I feel sorry for. We know Halle Berry's better than that, but. At the time, that just looked like Halle Berry was, was poor, but it's the writing that's let them down. This is the writing, I would say. Um, and it, it didn't help. Pierce Brosnan, I think, you know, he's got so much more in him and with a different film, a different script,
0: a different vision. It could have been fantastic, but this is just again. I do have to say, Steve, that I do think that we saw some of the limits of Brosnan's acting ability in this film, especially, actually, I meant to say this when we were talking about the star, like when he's when, when M is talking to him after he's been recovered from the torture, and Bond's saying really she's asking him if he's cracked and all this and Bond's saying, what, me? And all this kind of thing, and I feel like you got to see like, I, d- I don't feel like Brosnan was particularly convincing there. I think Brosnan is good when he's very restrained and his role is very clear and he's just an agent or whatever. Any other film I've seen Brosnan in really can be quite... Like, he's hes very much a guy who's in films that are so bad they're good because sometimes his performance is like that as well. Like, he goes... like He's he, hes not a character actor.
1: No, I suppose you're right, actually. He a leading man and he's always... Charmer is his main thing, I think. But
0: you know, I think video, this is down, you know he just he doesn't say yeah, very yeah. much. You know, in Bond he doesn't say very much. As soon as you start going into the character that he plays, it just becomes quite the quality goes down. All right, so we've covered uh, Jinx then, and
1: I think Rosamund Pike I did like. I always seem to to enjoy her performances, and I was glad to see her in the film doing the best she can do, probably with the writing again. But I, I, do, I did like her in
3: the film, Gordon. What's your thoughts? I Thought she was all right. I think it's about time we had another, another female MI6 operative. I love how she covered her tracks. M says to her, "You've been working for years on, it, or you've been working for months, trying to dig some dirt and Gustav graves, and you've come up with nothing." I find Rosemond Pike. She does maybe come across a little wooden at times. She was all oh, right. Really? Yeah. Um, she was okay. Um, no, because there's um, she's one of the better ones in the supporting cast. Because um, there's so many, I could go on with so many of the other supporting cast that just um, are a bit <laughs> uh, Michael a Madsen. Oh no! Yeah,
1: I, I'm a big Michael Madsen fan, but I didn't buy him. I didn't. I didn't think he suited that part.
3: Maybe he's better sticking to tough man and gangsters. <laughs> he he. Um... He was kinda miscast and just uh, one of these really irritating characters, Mr. Kill. I mean, what does he actually is? do? He just stands there. He's like a carbon copy of Gabor out of The World's Not Enough. And oh he's just he's just so inept. And then, I tell
0: you, I tell you, no wonder he could only get job as his henchman with a name like that. I mean, imagine <laughs> seeing his C V. You know, for customer uh, service, uh,
3: Mr. Kill.
2: Primary teacher or something, no. Yeah,
3: <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Kill. <laughs> Wait, this is a Bond film we're talking about. We're not, talk, we're not talking about a kiddie comic, you know. You don't have a character called Mr. Kill in the 20th Bond film. That's not how it works.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, it's it's just, you
0: know, it's just, I mean, it would be like having a doctor called, like, Dr. Heal or something. like. Yeah. I mean, it's just
3: ridiculous, isn't it? One of the things I feel about this film is not only is it the twentieth Bond film, fortieth anniversary, um, you know, of the start of the films, it's the last film for Brosnan. I look at this film and I think of the I think is this the same franchise as they gave us from Rush With Love, is this the same franchise they gave us license to kill, they gave us Doctor No?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Completely agree. There's always There's- one like that in a, a franchise, though. There's always a film that really makes you think. How can this be in the same reality? How can this be made by a similar team of people or whatever? You know, did they watch any Bond? I mean, you you, you get that way. I mean, same with anything. I can guarantee it. Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, every one of them, every major, you know, Lord of the Rings, even like every major franchise has something where you're just sitting there thinking, "What the heck is this?" You know. Steve, I know that you were quite more op- optimistic on the film
1: at the be- at the beginning of the podcast. We are. Uh, what's your your thoughts? You obviously liked more of it than we did.
2: I think so. I think it was the enjoyment factor. Um, I mean, I completely get how definitely if you look at this film, particularly as has been pointed out that this is this is the twentieth film. It's the fortieth anniversary of the film franchise. It deserves to be a lot better. It deserves to be something a bit less ridiculous. And it is ridiculous in points. I think it was... The enjoyment factor in this particular... I did quite enjoy... Um, I think I maybe enjoyed Jinx a bit better than the rest of you guys did, particularly towards then. That scene in the plane, for example, where you've got that kind of power play between Bond and Jinx, similar to the way he did, I suppose, with, with Wei Lin. I quite like seeing Bond working with an operative, with someone who's almost an equal to him. They kind of They could read each other. They were kind of plowing through all the bad guys together. I thought I particularly... I thought that worked particularly well. I I, I agree with you on on Rosamund Pike, on Frost. She, as opposed to Wooden, I think she was supposed to be the sort of very cold, calculating, sort of cold hearted, nothing phases her type uh, character.
0: I mean, similar to Mr. Kill, her name was Miss Frost, so it's very obvious, isn't
2: it? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that takes away from it. Again, because you've got, this film I think is full of elements that are almost there, and then something takes away from her. I also yeah, don't he's... understand why she was topless in the last scene. I legitimately couldn't work that out. She suddenly, a... when she um, confronted Jinx in the plane with a sword, she was randomly just wearing a bra. And yeah, it's... what's that all about? I don't understand why there was no. It's the main Unless audience. there was something that was maybe, out. Right, right. Was it maybe but...
0: quite warm because of the sun energy?
2: Maybe? Right. I mean... I <laughs> yeah. used, but that that again sort of jumped out as what
0: the fuck. <laughs> I mean, that would be like Bond just suddenly walking in with no top on, like just like, you
2: know,
0: <laughs> with no armor, nothing, just like fuck it.
2: <laughs> I know? would say I'll,
3: it was good what you said, Steve, about the um, you know her her being sort of cold as ice um, and the fact her name's Miranda Frost. Uh, for all the atrocious dialogue in this film, what probably the best line of the film was when Bond's walking with Pike through the or whatever um miranda frost through the the ice palace and he says so you must feel right at home here yes
2: yeah yeah
1: Yeah. right uh the ice palace for me uh was crazy um steve you you have always mentioned the 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 villain's lair Uh, and usually it's in that kind of way where we're impressed by it Uh, uh, did you feel that
2: way about this one yeah it's uh, that's it as you said it it looked spectacular. It looks the business I love a nice hotel but it was it was another example 'cause it was it was sort of obliquely mentioned by Miranda Frost. She sort of turns upon it when this has been built specifically for this this scientific launch, and it's it's one of those weird bond things where the bond villain will make an incredibly extravagant over the top room for one very small minor purpose, and then it probably kind of gets well it got destroyed completely in this yeah. case, by two sports cars. But yeah. it was, it, it does just, it, it gets me every time, the, the mentality of, it's always the megalomaniac villains that do it. And I just, there's something about that mentality that that tickles me. That, it's it's they've like, got to go, they've got to extrapolate their plan in the most over-the-top way possible. And <laughs> the time that he could have been using to actually firm up that plan and make it work, he's gone, no, build me an ice hotel. It's and pure it's ego. Like, well, we could, exactly that's it. It's, it's I suppose that's the purpose of it. It's to show off how uh, how egotistical, how highly they think of themselves, and um, how sort of stylish everything has to look. But yeah, I suppose when you when you dial down into it, you think that the people that worked on that probably could have actually worked on something that could have caused the plan to have worked properly. Because it it's always amazing. is the undoing.
1: It's amazing. Like it's so impractical that it is insane how easily that whole place could have well been demolished, or or because all you had to do was slightly turn a temperature up or something. Like it's just, it's
2: insane. Well, considering what? the main weapon was the hottest thing in the world, it was the sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna show off my ice hotel with. Uh, the sun's rays and yeah, what could possibly go wrong here?
3: That's just utter nonsense. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, how
3: how can you have a, an ice palace that just remains perfectly intact and uh, the ice bed and uh, it's it's just ridiculous and
1: the ice bed. Yeah, that's right. Because like, surely you know, if things are getting hot and heavy, the the, the temperature of would would rise a bit. I don't know how the beds didn't lose composition, whatsoever. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Bond, uh, Bond let his guard down a bit with with Miranda Frost. You would think he would. Um, I felt he should have maybe spotted the signs that that she was she was in league with Graves. Some. It was good. It was good knowing that you were. I think. Other than her name. Yeah. um, Sometimes it's good when you can be a step ahead of Bond, like knowing something that he doesn't know. I felt by that point you could tell that that she was working for the enemy. It
1: surprised me, to be honest, I wasn't completely, like, I didn't see it coming, but with hindsight, it was obvious.
3: Well, I think, I can't believe the it's maybe cool how the, the henchman Zal has his own car, because we've maybe not seen that before, but when the, see when the ice palace has fallen to bits, Bond goes in to rescue Jinx. Why does Zal follow him in? Surely he knows he's putting himself in danger and ultimately he dies, you know? Yeah. Little Again,
2: that's just a henchman putting himself above his master, despite the fact that his master's probably going to die. Or, or at least his master wasn't dead at that point and it wasn't completely pointless. That's yeah. um, another example of villain of a uh, henchman loyalty
1: going way way beyond the call of duty just to to get to bond yeah just... i feel um
3: perhaps zal was a bit um sounded a bit artificial just the way the way he spoke his name is james bond the british assassin maybe came across wooden at times but he was good. I liked him in the fight sequences. But there were I mean, like, you can of just put it down to him. You've got Mr. Kill and uh and I didn't like Michael Madsen, he was just plain annoying.
1: What about um They obviously the complaints. Can you see why North and both... I think North Korea had an issue with the whole, you're making us out like we're militaristic and all this kind of stuff. North
2: Korea has no comeback to that because I think they got the tone of North Korea. But for for North Korea gone, how dare you portray us as being militaristic when that's their entire... That's kind of their thing. That's what they do. I mean, they have massive displays of sort of parades of weapons down the street and marching and stuff like that. That's what... That's the image they portray to the world. So they don't, I think, have much. Um, was there were there complaints from South Korea on this?
1: I think so. I think I read that South Korea boycotted the film. I don't know um, if I've misunderstood there. It was North Korea, but I was sure it was South Korea that I read. It. I don't know if they've taken
3: offence to it as well. North um, Korea
2: wouldn't have shown the film. Definitely, I don't think they show yeah,
3: anything yeah. Western. I, I think I actually, see Colonel Moon. The original Colonel Moon, before he became Gustav Graves and his father, there was something menacing about the two of them. The pre-title sequence, I think, rather than going down the whole transformation route, you could have kept them just as they were, and they might have been good villains throughout the whole film. Although it was, I suppose, you could see with the senior Colonel Moon. I think he's senior Colonel Moon anyway. Whoever um, his fat, but Colonel Moon's dad, um, he was. You could tell he was slightly more diplomatic. Whether I that's plausible yeah. or not, I don't know, but um, I kind of like was... his character. He was good with Bond in, in the torture scenes, I thought, when he says, like, you've been here three years and or whatever, he's still you say nothing.
1: I think they obviously feel like, well, we can't set... They can't, the main villain can't be Korean, because that makes us look like we're kind of racist, so we'll make him kind of English as well. well. Obviously, a transformation, so it's an English actor that's really playing him, but his origins—he's is a, he's a Korean, so it's kind of a, a get out. But yeah, I think you're right. I think I would have preferred they scrapped the whole transformation thing. And oh yeah, yeah.
2: If but that's I- the reason, that feels a bit half-hearted because I, I think I, I, North Korea is actually ripe for having a good villain, a good Bond villain. I think that would have worked. And they had the kind of the kind of got there again because the the whole father son thing that. Again, it's very North Korea because obviously command is handed down from father to son. That's how it works. Kim Jong Un, Kim Jong Il, his father before him, etc. So you can see how a kind of power play between uh, father and son, one being slightly more diplomatic and wanting to amend relations, and one just wanting to absolutely destroy the place, would yeah. work. So, again, that's another example of they they almost kind of had it there, and then at the last minute they went no, let's do this ridiculous thing, and yeah. it was kind of all the all the worse for it. Yeah, sure.
3: I, yeah, I get the sense of the the writers Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. Their heart was in the right place with this film, and the the principal ideas were there. And I don't know how much of it was Lee Tamahori or whoever changing things, because I know for a fact there was big rewrites with this. Even the the Gustav Graves character could have could have been played so much better. I mean, the, he was actually originally based in. Hugo Drax, but Hugo Drax from the Moonraker novel, a billionaire that came out of nowhere, and I think there's so much more could be done with that, but they took it down let's just give him a big sort of invincible suit that can electrocute people and, and can oh. do anything, that you know, that, that was it, it,
1: utter rubbish That I didn't I didn't feel I was watching a Bond film. That was like The Matrix or... A, Iron Man, yeah. Game. It was like Halo or something like that. It did not... It did not. Re- I wasn't able to recognise that as a Bond film. If you walked in when those scenes were on at the end, you'd have been like, oh, right, okay, what film's this? Uh, it just wouldn't have triggered a Bond film. It didn't feel like that. And I don't always think that's a bad thing, because I know that sometimes, Gordon, we've disagreed on things like where GoldenEye music, things like that, slightly different from what you expect from the traditional Bond theme, but... There is an element of when it's so far that you just can't even. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work with the franchise at all. I think this is this is just too far,
3: too far. There's something comforting when you see some some of the other good supporting cast members with with um, recurring roles, like maybe um, Money Kenny, Penny could have been involved more. And I, I like Robinson's a character. He was uh, maybe underused or something. There's a kind of comfort when you see him. That's like his third. Kind of, he's just there for
1: exposition really i don't really know what i've not really seen a lot from him to really have much of an opinion of him what did we, you mentioned money penny what did you think of that whole gag there where she you know is using that equipment from q that's like a v really high tech vr that you're using your imagination somehow and that bit in the middle out?
2: where where bond was wearing it was obviously some kind of training exercise or whatever and i mean i legitimately thought holy shit they've killed off money penny how did i not realize it and i didn't see that coming yeah. Um, but then to bring it back at the end was, I, I, that was a little bit on the. I mean, it was, again, it was funny because I thought, oh, finally they've got it. I was about to put it into my notes, finally Bond and Moneypenny have got it together. This is obviously a 40th anniversary thing or a 20th film. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's just the VR thing. It's a joke. So I was, yeah. I was a bit, that was a bit odd.
1: What would you have preferred? Would you have preferred it if it, it was actually legit? They actually decided to, after womanising the other two women and it goes for Moneypenny to cap it off for the third, third one? <laughs>
2: It'd be slightly more. It makes slightly more sense. Well, maybe not sense, but I don't know. It's. I kind of thought, oh, finally they've done it. That's that's a, a touching thing. That was oh right. No, maybe not then.
3: But I um... it, would kind
2: of, it would have ruined the franchise if they'd done that. I suppose because they wouldn't have been able to have the sort of Bond money penny tension, which is a slightly vital component to make well, it a traditional Bond.
1: They they reboot anyway, so I suppose they could get away with that by just going. just reboot. Doesn't matter. Different continuity.
2: Different continuity. <laughs> yeah,
3: because that's what they Good did. Point. Because um, if you had that, you wouldn't have got. You actually get Bond and the the um rebooted Money Penny character and the Craig films becoming um, much closer than that, where something almost does happen. There's um, you know where the, the sexual tension goes through the roof. So you know. Um, yeah, I thought as well. because I, I was thinking there about John Cleese's as because he was very much involved in that that last scene of the kind of simulator. I I didn't mind him so much in this film. I, I really didn't like him in World's Not Enough, but there was a there was a charm to me. I don't think I think they did the right thing. They didn't they didn't um overplay him in, in this make him too much of a I comedy because it's like there was shades of that end of the world's not enough when he says about the millennium bug. He's got that yeah. right kind of look which has taken me a few viewings to, to really come to that conclusion. You know, it's an older John Cleese. It's not Basil Fawlty. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it could have worked if they'd set him up correctly, maybe, in the world's not enough. Because you've got to remember, although um Q um, maybe started off as a very serious character with with Desmond Llewellyn, you know, he touched the, the real kind of comic book side and, like, when he's posing as the road sweeper and when he's in the confession booth and all that. So... You know, um, I don't, some people get really pissed off when when they talk about John Cleese's cue, but I, I thought he was alright in this film. They
1: didn't do a lot with him. He was perfunctory. He was the guy that, you know, explained how things worked, showed him the invisible car, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, but Your eyes were always on something else, so he was just there. And that was it. It didn't he didn't wow me. I wasn't like oh, I was like fantastic scene. Loved that dialogue. Loved that interplay. It was just yeah. That was it. Um, yeah. That was just a shame, really. Um, Judy Dench was fine. I, I didn't. I liked her in it uh, as well. Jordan, you mentioned they had a good scene. I liked the underground scene with her and Bond.
3: Yeah, okay, it's like- good. And yeah the the way that um. <laughs> The just the the dialogue, the exchange bond was like, I didn't know this place existed, and now I know it doesn't. She says she like kinda gives him the same line. You know, it's uh I like the Bond and M scenes in this film. I, I do like them and uh why why was Madonna actually in that film? Madonna. I was gonna
2: say that. Yeah, why is has any other blonde famous singer been given a cameo like that? No.
3: Well, the
1: closest the closest was, I think, in the title sequence you could see Morris Bender put I can't remember who it was, who Gordon will know uh in, in the visual, but I don't think we've actually had a,
3: an actual cameo. Oh yeah, the, that was when Sheena Easton was singing she uh, for your eyes only, yeah, because that was a that was a big change up and yeah, this is a... I don't. I don't think it's been done with that. The actual singer has it. No. I, mean, I wonder if there was cast. a
2: deal there somewhere.
1: Nah, it was just a stunt cast. You know, it gets people talking. Madonna's in the film. Oh, because I remember a lot of that. I remember people speculating: Is she going to be the love interest? Is she going to be you know the Bond girl and things like that? Um, but you know, it was literally like a forty-five second scene. I guess she got a Razzie for it, which I think is a bit harsh. I don't think she was that bad. She was just a bit... She wasn't terrible, like, just yeah. necessarily. If you didn't know who she was somehow, you wouldn't have had an issue with that scene. She was just a person
3: introduced Bond to the villain. She does give away... I mean, some of her her dialogue is useful to know. Like, it, it says... It kind of tells you something about Miranda Frost. She says something along the lines of she was in the Fencing World Championship and she won because her opponent over... Overdosed and you know on drugs that they shouldn't have been taking. It's kind of it's uh, it's similar to *License to Kill*. Uh, Milton Kress says to Lupi, "Or Sanchez Fix that beauty contest that you won." You know, it's like that I get it. That's a, that's kind of cool. And um, there's a it's similar to how there's uh, you get a bit of Gustav Graves back. No, it's not Gustav Graves. Colonel Moon um, about a Western education. I don't know how plausible that is. You know this. North Korean cardinal. He went to Oxford for a Western education. Uh, I don't know, but
2: most of the North Korean sort of big guns have studied in the UK. Um, I don't think the actual Kim family have but a lot of the sort of major senior generals and stuff. Yeah, they they come over here, they study at uh, at the sort of high-ranking universities or whatever, and then they do go back to North Korea and kind of either pass on information. I don't know how it works, but a lot that's not completely uh, unprecedented. okay all right then what
1: is there anything else you guys want to talk about i think we're going to have to go into the rating soon but is there anything else you guys want to touch on have we touched on enough on the cg i suppose we have we've just said it was poor wasn't it you
0: could just say it's it's terrible yeah i mean it's like
2: that you know surfing parachute scene was just i mean that was almost going back to the films of the 60s where you you'd see bond driving a car and it was obviously a green screen in the background but that was understandable in the 60s because that was the technology. There was no excuse for that in
0: 2002. Yeah, and see, Gordon, when you mentioned Jinx jumping backwards off the cliff. You know, I actually burst out laughing when that came on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the sound effects as well. The sound, if you watch that again, you'll notice that the music and the sound goes away and it's just complete silence. Yes. It's like, it's so ridiculous. It's like she just just disappears. You could actually go to black and just end the film there for a real
3: comedy <laughs> experience, you know. and It oh. reminded me, it was almost the same the same cliff. That me and Steve B were absolutely rolling about the four laughing I and mean, Never Seen Ever Again when he does the horse jump. Oh God! Oh, however uh, <laughs> that lives long in the memory. And the other thing that reminded me Never Seen Ever Again was her coming out of the water, but, but we'll we'll not go there. But um, oh. there was, um, I mean, the the last thing I was going to say before the rating was really just, I mean, I've got to say, did appreciate a few nice classic Bond touches. I liked him strolling into the hotel. He says, my usual suite, please. He his Bollinger delivered. I want a tailor, you know. He gets given a briefcase with a passport ready-made. It's just, he says I'm from... And then I think when he goes to Cuba, he says, um, I work for Universal Exports. I mean, you know um, that I like those kind of classic old-school Bond touches. I I thought that was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right then. Let's go on to the rating. Uh... I think I'll go first on this one. It's a two star for me. It isn't. uh I had toyed with it at the beginning. The first third, I thought, you know, this could be a low free, This could get a free. And as the film went on, the absurdity lost me. I wasn't really following the plot. My interest waned significantly. Supporting cast and villains weren't really that intriguing for me, um, which can usually save a film because I've always never really liked I didn't really like The Man uh, with the Golden Gun, but Scaramanga alone put that film up to a free. Um, but this one didn't have that for me. Uh, and it, it's the... I didn't actually notice all of the product placement, if I'm honest, uh, as much as I read on the research for that. It didn't So that didn't bother me too much, but just all the writing, poor. Supporting cast were fine, but there was issues with dialogue. Brosnan was fine, but not even his best. And yeah, it just... It was too absurd, too crazy. Actually more crazier than I remembered it. And that first pre-title sequence was the best part about it. And that's a shame, really, because you you want you want to keep that going. The tonal inconsistencies didn't work. The music was fine. Cinematography is the only thing I really enjoyed. There was moments where you could actually if this was just the film was just playing in the background and you weren't watching it beautiful images, I think the cinematography should should be uh, some praise given there um, but really that's almost where my praise kind of ends I don't think Lee Tamahori is the director we've not really mentioned his name, I really don't think his style worked for me because um, as much as you can put the blame on nearly all of the writing, surely, and the, the vision of this film the, the actual direction didn't work for me, there was a lot of close cut action scenes that i it was just actually sh- struggling to find you know what was happening in the scene it was so frantic and it didn't didn't really work if you've watched the raids you know how a good action director can construct can do a real fight scene like the fencing scene if you compare that to such a scene in the raids doesn't stand a chance uh so yeah none of the, a lot of that was just flawed and again it's the references it's trying to evoke the fantastic films of the past but with a film that just is nowhere near it for me, so it's a two-star film. Fran, where where do you sit with this one?
0: I feel very similarly. Um, you know, pretty much, pretty much all the points that you made there. I don't really think there's anything I would add to what you said. Do you know what I mean? And I wouldn't take anything away from it. And it's the same rating. It's a two-star for me as well for for the for for the same reasons. Um, you know, I kind of see where Steve's coming from in the sense that. You could sit down, switch your brain off, not have to have seen any of the other movies and, you know, fairly enjoy it just, you know, on its own. I mean, not everyone's a critic. Not everyone's going to be sitting there dissecting the film and comparing it to, like, you know, I don't know, War and Peace or whatever. (laughs) Like, nobody's going to be sitting there and thinking, oh, what, you know, is this a piece of transformative art? You know, they're not going to be considering how it treats characters or how it treats plot or, or whatever. They might snigger a little bit at a couple of bits of staffed CGI. You know, but on the whole, people would probably, you know, they're, they're, it's not so bad that it becomes a joke, but it's bad enough that it's not. It's it's certainly below par, I would say. And that's why it's two and not three. Um, So yeah, so that's all I would really add to it, is that is that the awareness that we are a different kind of audience and the fact that we're analysing the film. um, Not yep. only... um with you know with a critical mind but also compared to the other bond films as well so yeah two, two
1: stars excellent fran thank you steve what's your thoughts then
2: uh well i think like you said i think i'm I'm maybe slightly more optimistic on this maybe i'm just a bit more of a sucker for the the sort of action type stuff maybe it is the fact that i'm a slightly newer to the franchise and i think particularly what's causing me to be like slightly more positive positive is because the previous experience that this was the world is not enough, which, as I pointed out in the last cast, was just terrible. Awful. Um I mean I can I can see a lot of the laziness, the the plot hole, some completely sort of inexplicable stuff going on. I think, again, going back to what I said at the start, this whole film, it's it is style over substance. It's there are some terrible things. You, you've got a particularly poor bit of dialogue or whatever. And then it's kind of, oh, look over there at this really cool explosion. or some really bad CGI. But then it's like, oh, look over there, Bond's doing something amazing. So it's it's almost distraction techniques, trying to sort of take your eye off the fact that there are poor parts of the films. Previous films that I've given bad ratings to, I think I've switched off because there's been so little going on. So I think there was obviously enough in this film to almost hold my attention. Um, I did like the characters perhaps a little more, uh, the sort of female characters in particular. Uh, I thought the villain, despite not being particularly memorable, was, it kind of, it played the megalomaniac psychopath well enough, particularly towards the end. Uh, this film did fall back into the whole um, bad guy ineptitude thing, particularly during the preamble, but for the amount of sort of explosions and gunfire and weapons in this scene, no one managed to hit bond once the closest anyone came was graves with a sword so it was I can see how that could take it away from it Um, so I mean I am slightly tied in this I think I'm actually going to go three and a half on this because it's too it was too enjoyable for me to give anything less to Um, but I can see how it does fall down in parts so uh, I'm going to settle on that three and a half
1: okay yep fair enough gordon
3: What's your final rating for this film? I think I'm going to go two and a half. I think maybe the extra half mark from agreeing with similar to what you guys said is there, there is a slight charm about it. And I don't know if it's also because I don't think it's quite hit the low point of diamonds or forever. Cause I was trying to weigh the two up and think what's the, the one I, I really dislike the most. I'll go two and a half. I think this was a film that they had actually great ideas and I would point out there was a lot of um, script rewrites, but some great ideas, but sometimes poorly executed, I think. the, I mean, to go over the good points first, I thought some of the music was good. I thought the the Bond torture angle was great. I liked that, that dark side, which they sh- unfortunately that tone didn't continue and the film deteriorated. Fantastic sets, uh, great camera work. I thought Brosnan, you can't really fault him too much, actually. I, I thought he... Um, played the part very well like i said he's been really unfortunate in this franchise just with the sort of material that's been been given to him i think um the rewrites the, the i mean the word in the street is that this film um there was an original script that was was darker and perhaps the director took it along the the lines in the fantasy land and ruined it a bit originally like I think Miranda Frost was originally meant to be a character from the Moonraker novel, Gala Brandt, who's like she's the one leading female character that never get used, which you know there was maybe promise there. Um, didn't like the Madonna theme. I thought that some of the dialogue was terrible, I've got to say. One or two decent one-liners, but I think, like with said, it was overloaded with with dodgy one-liners. Invisible car, Icarus, um, this whole um, the the big tsunami wave over use of CGI it's it's taken it's just taken things too far and just such a shame I mean like I said you know you're going to the twentieth Bond film they should be absolutely pulling out the stops to make this a real a great hit to Bond and in a good way maybe more maybe along the darker lines of Goldeneye and given given Pierce Brosnan a good send off so yeah some great some early promise in this film but some good ideas poorly executed
1: okay so uh two and a half and two twos and a three and a half so not quite the diamond diamonds are forever um which i think was a nearly an all three and a one uh so yeah it's it's so far not the worst film then uh which bodes well for the for the for the films because there's only one more film that is a known stinker that we're still to watch. I think, um, so that's that's good. Okay, that ends the Brosnan era. We are done. Um, I would say you could argue that Brosnan's films uh, were just a slow decline. I, I, for me, is uh, a, I've actually have physic. I've rated them as a five, a four, three, and a two. So um, you know, it's just one of those. It's a shame that Brosnan could have had another film, uh, and it could have he could have done some great stuff with better writing and directing. I think I wonder if Lee Tamahori is just as guilty as the as the writing for the for the production, but we don't know. No point in
3: uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, I mean one final point about that: the absolutely terrible use of CGI and pro- possibly the worst ever use of the Bond theme with that big, you know, um, um, parachute over the waves scene is in the in the Bond documentary Everything or Nothing, the, it's the 50th anniversary documentary, when Brosnan gets asked about that scene, he actually laughs out loud, you know, it kind of tells you all you need to know.
1: Does he? Because really? he's usually the kind of guy, he's very go against the he, he knows to toe the line, like you get the feeling that he, wouldn't, he doesn't really criticise the franchise too much, he's very disrespectful uh, and things like that so it's funny to see him doing that.
2: Yeah,
3: I, I like it. Th- I like the, the Bros a lot I really um, and I felt for him as well watching that um, documentary he also I was assumed that he decided to depart the role but he, he kind of spoke of his heartache when I think it was Barbara Broccoli phoned him and yeah, said that they yeah. wanted to part ways and yeah I felt kind of sad I thought it was a great bond I like. Yeah him. I
1: think they were in the middle of the negotiating phase maybe over money and things contracts and things like that and they just phoned him when he was on holiday in like Hawaii or something like that and said yeah the negotiations are stopped you're not going to get used again um I get why we're about to enter I suppose the Craig era 4 years later a complete reboot the first ma- major obvious reboot of the franchise and one of the high marks I think uh, of of the of the entire franchise the next film Casino Royale which is actually the book that I have read of the Bond <laughs> the Bond series uh, from Fleming um Yeah, I think they obviously knew that they wanted Diamonds. It's almost like the way Moonraker was when they went so far and they had to have the next film be a kind of more grounded affair. The the For Your Eyes Only was meant to be them going back to the sort of Connery style of just a straight up action film with no gadgets and no silly one-liners and playing down even the Playboy feel of the film. This was them completely doing an entire 180 and uh, changing up the style and to that grounded sort of brutal nature of the of the original series of films, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this. This is a film I've seen a couple of times, and I, I've liked it each time. I've even more each time I've seen it. So yeah, that's uh, that's us, guys. Thank you very much for another episode of this. Thanks for joining me. It's been fun. We uh, be, say goodbye to Bros. We welcome in Daniel Craig. We'll be back for Casino
0: Royale. Bye bye.